Right now I'm walking through the ancient streets of the old city Jerusalem and it was built upon the foundations of many other cultures from many other times and it's a lot like our faith. Our faith has come down to us through the stories, the events, and the lives of other people that God has used. And so in this series we're inviting you to walk along with us as we look at those ancient foundations for our faith. This series is called Origins. I'm most excited about visiting. It's the Mount of Olives. It's a beautiful view of, of Jerusalem, but more important than that, Jesus was here. This is a big part of the story. In fact, from this very spot on the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven with the promise that he was going to prepare a place for us. But this is also the place where he unfolds our great ending. The Bible makes it clear that he's going to come again and his feet are going to touch first, right here on the Mount of Olives, right here in view of the city of Jerusalem, which is why so many people, in fact, 150,000 plus people bought burial plots right here on the Mount of Olives because they wanna wait for his return. But wherever we're buried around the globe, the fact that he's coming again means that there's always hope when we know him. He will be coming again. Are you ready? The Mount of Olives, it's the place that we're looking at as we continue in this series, Origins, this weekend. And if you've been here for any of the other talks, if you haven't, welcome. It's great to have you here. You can catch up by getting online at northridgechurch.com and watching the talks. We, we give them away online. But if you've been here any amount of time, you've probably noticed every time I do one of those videos, I say... Like, this is my favorite place in the Holy Land. Like, this is the one place that I just can't imagine not going to in the Holy Land. And the, the truth is, how can you go to the Holy Land and not benefit from every single place? Each one has its own dynamic potential for impact in our lives. And when it comes to the Mount of Olives, I have to tell you, though it's not uh, a normally beautiful place, it's not like you'd go, whoa, that's a place I'd go to just to enjoy the beauty. It's a uniquely beautiful place. It's profoundly interesting when you really dive into the place and all that happened there. And when you do, it's awe-inspiring. This series is all about providing context that allows us to understand better the unfolding of God's story as he gave it in the Bible. And that's a that's a fact that's often missed, is that if you don't understand or know the context, you're not going to ultimately know or understand the truth. And this is how you can get off. This is how you can misunderstand what God is trying to say. So you have to know the context. And the Mount of Olives is a perfect example of this, because the Mount of Olives plays a huge role in the unfolding story of God all through history, and yet most people know nothing about the Mount of Olives, nothing about it. When they read the Bible and it's talking about the Mount of Olives and that's the context, they just read right by, they don't even notice it. And if you don't know the context, you're going to miss some of the power of the truth. And so we're hoping that this weekend, as we look at the Mount of Olives, you'll understand the context more and therefore you'll experience the impact of the truth. 
just a little bit more. And so let's just look at the place for a second. The place, the Mount of Olives. It's a, it's a real place. It's not a made-up city. And it happens to be on the east side of the Temple Mount. Now, I'm sitting, as I teach, right in front of a picture of a portion of the Mount of Olives and the ancient walls or a portion, small corner of the ancient walls of Jerusalem are there. And behind it, a little bit to the right, is the Temple Mount. The temple is where the Jews worshipped for all those years. It's where the Holy of Holies was, where God's presence and glory was. Right now, if you look at pictures of Jerusalem, it's where the Dome of the Rock is. It's an Islamic uh, holy site. But that, that Temple Mount is, the, the east side of the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is, is really one of about three little hills to the east side of Jerusalem there. And it's t- about 26 to 2,700 feet high. About 2,600 feet high. And the, nothing's more than about 2,900 feet high there. So it's not like uh, a rock, rocky mountain or anything. It's not like you would go and climb it like you'd climb Mount Everest. But it is a mount in this setting. The Mount of Olives is sep- separated from Jerusalem by a, just a small valley. And it's a valley that, once again, is mentioned throughout biblical story. It's called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley. And an interesting fact is that the Mount of Olives has been used as a burial ground for thousands of years. I mean, you can see it. It's a burial ground. And from what I've been able to discover, at least, it's the single oldest burial ground that's been in continuous use anywhere in the world. I mean, that's a fascinating deal. But why has it been used as a burial ground? How come so many people want to be buried there? I mean, a lot of people aren't curious enough to know. But if you don't know the context, you won't realize that point. I'm curious, before we get into this thing, what do you notice about this burial ground that's different than our typical burial ground in our sphere of the world? Of course, the the graves are above ground instead of underneath. It's not dug in, it's above ground. It has to do with a lot of the rock and the topography of this land. But there's something in the ceremonial part of this burial ground that's different. When we want to show the world or make sure the world knows that a loved one who's passed on um, has not been forgotten, that they were loved and there are people still on this planet that, that are impacted by their memory, what do we take to the graveside? Flowers, sure. Flowers, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, and there are no flowers here. And many of us would go, wow, these people, they don't care about the people they love. Because what happens is we try and interpret and understand their world through our understanding of our context. And it doesn't work that way. It's not that they don't care. They care greatly. In in fact, you see rocks put on a lot of these tombs. It was more clear in the video. And, you know, some have a ton of rocks. And it's almost like kids are coming and destroying other people's property and messing it all up. And it looks kind of dingy and dirty and and disorderly to us. But it's not at all. Yes, of course, flowers aren't in abundant supply here. But they could get them anywhere and bring them just like we do. So what's going on? Well, flowers, you know, don't last very long. The beauty of flowers, they, they fade and they die away. And to the Jewish mind in this particular context, they go, you know, that's what happens to the memory of most people. They fade away. They, they die in the lives of those who love them and, and they're no longer remembered. We don't want that to be the case in the memory of our loved ones. And so they use rocks. Rocks never fade away. They, they never die. They, they never disappear. They never wilt. And so when they put a rock there, they're saying, this person was loved by many. This person is carried in our memories. This person will never be far from us in the world. It's really a poetic way to celebrate the memory of a loved one. It's very poetic. You'd never know it if you didn't know the context. And I'm going to tell you, that was for free. 
I mean, I just gave you that as a free aside. It has nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about right now, but now you know more than you did when you came in, right? Now, interestingly, the Mount of Olives, which is a big part of the unfolding story of God, was first mentioned in the Bible by name, the Mount of Olives, way back in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. You can kind of read the context. If you don't know much about the, the Old Testament or the Bible story, you won't know about David fleeing from Absalom. If you do, you will. King David was a great king of Israel, a great king, but he went through a really hard season where his rebellious son Absalom decided he was going to overthrow his daddy while he was still alive and take his kingdom. And for a short time, David literally was at threat. And so he had to run from Jerusalem And it literally talks about, by name, the Mount of Olives there. And I have to tell you, this this impacts me profoundly because when I've had the privilege of being there, physically standing or sitting on the Mount of Olives, it just blows my mind that I'm in the very place that King David, one of the great followers of God down through history, stood and walked, experienced some hard times. He often saw it in his view from ancient Jerusalem where his palace and his kingdom were. I I mean, it's profound. And it's true of much of the biblical story. All of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem experienced the Mount of Olives. Many of the stories in the Bible took place on the Mount of Olives. But here's what's really interesting. This place, the Mount of Olives, is where much of the story yet to be told, yet to be experienced of God's work in this world is going to take place. In fact, everything's working towards a climactic moment in history when God fulfills his ultimate promise to take all the wrongs and make them right, to overcome all of the injustices and to create true justice again, to to take away all the darkness and create light, to take away all the hatred and insert love for his kingdom to reign. And it's going to happen when his feet touch the Mount of Olives again. In fact, that turns us to the prophecy. And this is more of a conversational talk than it is a proclamation to you. I just want to talk you through this place so that you can understand its impact potential in your life. The prophecy. Now, you may not know, but God in the Bible tells us about the future that we don't know. And one of the ways to describe what he's doing when he's telling us about the future is to call it prophecy. Now, we would consider prophecy predictive work, predictions. I mean, if we're going to try and be prophetic about the future, what we would do is we would try and add up the best probabilities, make our best guesses from what we've seen and what the world has experienced before, and then we would predict what's going to happen in the future. Like I would have predicted that the Detroit Tigers were going to take down the Boston Red Sox. That would have been my prediction. But I would have been wrong. And usually when we human beings predict the future, we're wrong. Have you ever read those predictions about each new year and what's going to happen and what's going to come down? They're almost always wrong because they're guessing. But when God gives prophecy, he's not guessing. He's not taking the best probabilities of life and adding it together with great intelligence and and then saying, this is my best guess at what's to happen. When God is prophesying of the future, he's simply foretelling us what will happen. Because God knows beginning from end. You say, how does he know beginning from end? God doesn't live within time. He created time. God transcends time. God experiences all time in the same moment. And I'm telling you, he knows beginning from end. So when he says something's going to happen in the future, there's no doubt it's going to happen. He's already seeing it. Look at Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet. And look what he prophesied about the Mount of Olives. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The his feet is talking about the Messiah, the great deliverer, the king of kings who's going to set up his kingdom in this world. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. Something will happen in this moment. He's saying, in the future, when Messiah, the deliverer's feet, touch the Mount of Olives, God will be king over all the earth. Look what it says. On that day, there will only be one Lord. You know today there are many lords. 
You know, there today, there's only one true Lord, but many people are worshiped, many gods are venerated, many religions are formed in order to do it, and there's not just one king and one kingdom. There are many kings and many kingdoms, and isn't that where so much of the conflict is going on? I just saw a, memor- a memorial for a couple of soldiers that from America lost their lives again this last week in Afghanistan. One kingdom fighting against another kingdom. Kingdoms within those kingdoms fighting against each other. What a horrific thing. But what God's saying is there's going to be a day when the world's going to be set right again. When I will be king over the whole earth and there will only be one Lord and his name will be the only name worshipped. You know what I think of when I think of what's going to happen when his feet touch on the Mount of Olives in that time? He's going to finally answer fully the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It will be fully answered in that moment when his feet in the future touch the Mount of Olives. Wow, it's pretty awesome. It's awesome. It's going to happen. Right now we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're certainly looking for the full redemption of this world. We're looking for the prophecy of Zechariah to come true. But right now we're saying, God, though it's not happening in the world, let it happen in me. Your kingdom come, your will be done in me. And if it happens in enough of us where we are, his kingdom will be built and seen and his will will be done. But it's not happening worldwide, but one day it will. He's going to fulfill his promise. And, and now you have a little bit of context that can open your mind to some understanding you didn't have before because you see, there's a reason all these people wanted to be buried on the Mount of Olives. There's a reason 150,000 are buried there now. It's a reason, there's a reason some people are willing to spend $50,000 to have their little mausoleum wedged into that place. And it's because they want to be buried where God is going to come and establish his kingdom, where his feet are going to touch and change the world. They want to be buried where he's going to fulfill his promise to bring redemption and renewal and restoration to the world and to their lives because the Old Testament Jew as well as the New Testament believer knew that God was going to raise them from the dead and establish the kingdom and they wanted to be as close to him him as they could be when that moment came. Here's, Here's the real deal. They want to be buried in a place of hope. Is there anything with less hope in it than death? I mean, you've ever been in a, in a hospice center? They want to be buried in the face of hopelessness, in a place of hope, because they believe in the promises of God. Man, it opens your eyes. Here's another thing to think about. During his first coming, Jesus' first coming was when he was born of a virgin, and he lived out the perfect life that all human beings before him failed to live out. And then, and then he paid the penalty with his life on that cross for the sins of mankind, for the wages of sin is death. He died in our place and then rose again. During his first coming, as he was teaching, Jesus actually sat on this mount, the Mount of Olives, and taught about his second coming. Jesus made it clear he would be the one who in the prophecy of Zechariah would come and touch his feet on the Mount of Olives and set the world right. And his disciples knew it. Look at Matthew chapter 24. You can read the whole passage on your own, but look at two verses, verse 3 and 30. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. They said, tell us when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the nations of the earth will mourn. Of course they will, because all of those rebellious nations will be wiped out. And he will establish one nation, one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Wow. I mean, boom, feet, Mount of Olives, kingdom of God is there. Hope alive, hope renewed. And Jesus saying, this is going to happen at the last time. But why did it happen here? Do you realize what was going on in the life of the disciples? Is the disciples started to go, this is the one that was promised to come. This is the one that in the terms of the Bible is the Lion of Judah. Judah, he's the deliverer. He's the conqueror. He's going to be the one that establishes God's kingdom in this world forever. This is the son of David who preceded David. This is the one who will reign for God. 
Whoa, he's Messiah. Peter even announced it in Caesarea Philippi, as we saw during this series, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And as they started to realize that, they started to connect all the dots. And what did the dots point to? This is the one who said he's going to step foot on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to set the world right. So what did they do? Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. They know who he is now. And so they came to him privately and said, you know, you've got the inside scoop. You're going to come back and do this. When's it going to happen? What's it going to be like? And then Jesus opened the door to that just a little bit. That's just awesome. Jesus, during his first coming, talked about his second coming. That's a big deal. But most of us are kind of outside of that. Most of us feel a little bit isolated and separated from that second coming thing. We, we really aren't so sure about it. It's a little bit far away from us. So I want to share with you something that happened on the Mount of Olives that will make the second coming a certainty in the reality of your future if you trust it, if you know it. And I'm going to call it the presentation because on the Mount of Olives, we we know there's going to be a presentation. The King of Kings is going to come and step his feet on that thing and he's going to establish the kingdom of God forever. But while he was here during his first coming, there was a presentation of him that literally shows us who he is and it unfortunately shows us who we are as human beings. And it starts with the triumphal entry. Now, if you don't know a lot about Jesus' story or the Bible, you don't know that four days before he was rejected, four days before he was beaten to a pulp, and four days before he was nailed to a cross and and killed, he experienced what we call a triumphal entry, a triumphal entry. He was celebrated as the great deliverer. He was celebrated as the king they were looking for. He was celebrated as the conqueror they all wanted in their life, four days before he was rejected and crucified. Look at a part of the story in Luke chapter 19, verses 35 through 37. They, they brought it to Jesus. It was a colt. Let's call it a donkey that was prophesied Jesus would ride on. They brought this donkey to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on this colt and put Jesus on it, sat him on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks, their, their garments, their clothing on the road. So even the donkey wouldn't touch it. I mean, they were celebrating him as, as the king who would deliver them. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, and and I and those who've traveled with me have been on this road, and they found no human remains whatsoever under this road. So it's more than likely the road that we walk on today was the road he was riding on that day. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. You're awesome. You're from God. You're the promised deliverer. You're going to rescue us from Rome. But then four days later, he's crucified and everybody's shouting for his death. Now, I tell you, early in my spiritual journey, before I really got into the Bible, I had a hard time understanding of this. And I find most people, probably most of you, have a hard time understanding how the people of Jerusalem could go from celebrating this Jesus this way to in a matter of days screaming for him to be crucified and killed. How good could they go from calling him the great king to saying, get rid of him? Well, when you really understand what's going on here on the Mount of Olives as he's experiencing this presentation, it'll make sense to you because context helps open understanding to you. What was really happening on the Mount of Olives that day? Well, you have to know the timing. It was just before the Passover celebration was to happen. They were preparing for the Passover celebration. For those of you who don't know much about the Bible, the Passover celebration was a yearly celebration in memory of something God did a long time before. The Jews had been enslaved in Egypt the power of the day, the powerful nation of the day for 400 years. And finally, God's timing was right and he heard their prayers and he sent Moses to deliver them. But Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. So God sent one crisis after another. They're called the plagues, one after another. And Pharaoh kept ignoring it and holding on to God's people, enslaving them and brutalizing them. And finally, God, to break the back of Pharaoh in Egypt, decided he would send one last plague, the 10th plague, which was going to be the death of every firstborn male living creature on the planet, animal and human. Talk about a catastrophe. 
There was only one exception for those who trusted God, those who were willing to obey God, follow his instructions, follow his guidelines. They could rescue their firstborn males by taking a little lamb that had no defects and no flaws and sacrificing it, killing it, and applying that innocent blood to their homes in a specified way. And if that happened, the death angel would pass over them, pass over them. And on the day of the great Passover, those who applied the blood of the little lambs to their home, their firstborn were safe, firstborn males, but every other firstborn male in Egypt died. It was a day of darkness and brokenness and death, so much so that it broke Pharaoh's back and he let the people of God go. And every year since, they did the same thing. This is important because here on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus is mounting that donkey and coming down that road, being presented and celebrated as the great king, they're getting ready for Passover. They were inspecting their lambs because the lamb had to be without defect and flaw. And to inspect the lambs, they would literally bring them, most of them, into their family setting. And they would watch this, make sure it wasn't sick, make sure it didn't have any problem. Because they wanted to give a perfect lamb in sacrifice so that their sins would be covered. Temporarily, of course. And then they were getting ready for the sacrifice. That's what was going on. And so it was lamb inspection and sacrifice time as Jesus was entering triumphantly into Jerusalem. Look what Exodus chapter 12 says about the Passover celebration, verses three through six. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. Each head of the household, each father is to select out a lamb for his family, one for each household to cover their sins. And the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect because it's going to take the place, once again, in the Passover celebration of the firstborn males that would die. And then once it's inspected and without flaw, when all the people of the community of Israel then must slaughter them at twilight of the 14th day of the month. And so from the 10th to the 14th, how many days is that? Four. Four days. It was a four-day inspection to make sure the lamb was without blemish. Now this really makes sense when you understand the context of who Jesus was. Look at John chapter 1, verse 29, when he was finally presented to the world by John the Baptist, who was here simply to herald the coming of Messiah. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him in front of a multitude of people. And this is what he said. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that moment, John made very, very clear the unfolding story of God. Every little lamb since the first ones were killed, killed, and every subsequent lamb since was simply an illustration looking forward to the true lamb of God who could come. Those lambs did not match the human beings who died. But Jesus came and would match except be sinless, without flaw, without defect. He was coming to earth to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And so when he mounted that donkey that day in front of the multitudes going into Jerusalem, he was offering himself up for inspection as the Lamb of God. Here's what happened. The Father God chose out the perfect Lamb for his created family, the world And now the lamb was offering himself up for inspection. He was going to be among them for these next four days. As he rode that donkey, he was saying, have you recognized who I am? I'm the lamb the father has chosen to be sacrificed to save you from your sin. And I'm gonna tell you, it started out really well because it looked like they got it. They understood who he was. But you need to understand the fuller story. In that moment, Jesus was celebrated on that day when he rode that donkey. I mean, he was celebrated. He was venerated. He was worshiped. But ultimately, he was rejected at the same time. At first glance, it looks like they were accepting him. But when you look deeper, you find out they weren't. Look at Luke chapter 19, verses 38 through 39. It says, this is what the people were doing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's the great conqueror. He's the great deliverer. He's the one that's going to set us free. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. They were simply saying, you're not our king. You're not our Messiah. We're not looking to you. And ultimately, these leaders convinced all of the crowds of the same. They turned the view of the people around to where they were going from celebrating to screaming for his crucifixion. And here's what you need to understand the point of this whole presentation on the Mount of Olives to be. They wanted a political deliverer. They didn't want a spiritual deliverer. They wanted a deliverer to help them overcome Rome. They didn't want someone to come and save them from sin and Satan. They weren't interested in that. And the text of the Bible really affirms this when you understand semantics. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, this is the same experience, the triumphal entry right there on the Mount of Olives. says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that sounds so wonderful. It sounds like they're worshiping so well. But you need to know, at the time, there were political zealots that their entire thing was to, in the name of God, pick up swords and to go and attack Rome and to overcome Rome in the name of of God, political zealots, and Hosanna was a word co-opted by them to be a symbol for their political, spiritual revolution, and palm leaves, which weren't very um, abundant in this particular area of the world, were a symbol of political revolution. What they were doing here is they were simply signing up. They were saying, finally, the revolution is engaged. We're joining the revolution because this guy has the power to do miracles. This guy can overcome Rome. This guy is bigger than Caesar. Hail be to God for sending us this political deliverer. Here's the problem. Here he was setting himself up for inspection. And at first they were saying, he is our conqueror. But over the course of the next four days, during the inspection process, as households were inspecting their lamb, all of Jerusalem was inspecting this king, and he didn't measure up. Because, you see, they were looking for someone who would conquer Pilate and conquer Herod and conquer Caesar. But you know what he was doing instead? He was attacking them. He came into the temple, and he saw that they were focused on business and profit instead of on prayer and knowing God. And he overturned all the tables and he scourged and chased them all out and it just ticked off the entire city. Every time they were looking for him to deliver them, he did something to help them to know God better and that's not what they were looking for. You see, they wanted a political deliverer, not a spiritual one. And, and here's why they turned on him. From celebration to crucifixion. And I'll put it in a sentence and then I'll explain it. They wanted a lion, not a lamb. They wanted a lion and not a lamb. They wanted him to be what they wanted him to be. They didn't want him for who he was and for what he came to be. And, and I just need to give you a point of identification. This truth, as I sit on the Mount of Olives probably has done more to profoundly impact my devotional relationship with God than any other because I've realized in this time of presentation of Jesus as king that I am too much like those who rejected him on the Mount of Olives that day. I, I have found that too often I want a lion, not a lamb. Too often I want what I want from him. I don't want who he is and what he wants for me. I'm not praying your kingdom come and your will be done. I'm saying I'm really glad you're here to help me build my kingdom and to do my will. And if you're honest, this is you as well. In my terms, we want a lion and not a lamb. You see, he is the lion of Judah. He is the one who will come and turn all the wrongs into right, create justice in this world and Create the kingdom of God which will endure forever. He is the lion who will conquer all evil. But the first coming, he came as a lamb. They wanted him to be what they wanted, not what he was. And I do the same thing. You do as well. And think about it. It only makes sense. Come on. They were in misery. They were in bondage to Rome, just like Israel before had been in bondage to Egypt. They were looking for him to come and deliver them from their suffering, from their temporary settings. And let's be honest, isn't life always a fight? I mean, life's a battle. Life is tough. Walking through brokenness, walking through 
dreams being dashed against the docks of reality, walking through betrayal and rejection, trying to hold our life together economically, trying to hold our families together in a world of such isolation and separation and conflict. I mean, here we are fighting the fight. And who wants to take a lamb into the fight? We want a lion. That's what we need. We want someone who can overcome, who can deliver us. And that's what they wanted. They wanted him not to be a lamb. They wanted him to be a lion. And when he turned out to be a lamb... They had no use for him. They rejected him. And we do the same thing. Because here's what we do. We're looking to Jesus to benefit us in our short-term dreams and goals. But he's coming with eternal plans for us. And when he doesn't give us what we want, we too often reject him. Here's the great impact for me of this moment of presentation on the Mount of Olives. Here's what they didn't realize on that day. And this is what we often miss as well. We will never know him as the lion, as the conqueror, as the deliverer, until we first know him as the lamb, the savior, the one who forgives us. Because the lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. And I'm gonna tell you, this is so clear in the scripture. We want to see the lion And we're really, really confused when we get the lamb. That was what was going on the Mount of Olives. They were looking for someone to conquer Caesar, but they found someone who was wanting to conquer sin and Satan. They were looking for someone to make everything outside right, but they weren't looking for someone to come in and make everything inside right. And they missed him as a result. In Revelation chapter 5, the Revelation is the great book of God foretelling what's going to happen in the future. And... Um, It's Jesus talking to one of his followers, John, and he wrote this while in isolation on an island called Patmos. And and in one section where he's kind of foretelling a piece of the future that's yet to happen, he says in Revelation 5.5, Then one of the elders said to me, John, don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, you know, the king of kings, the one who's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it and set up God's kingdom forever. That one, he's already triumphed. He's already conquered. He's already delivered. And he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals at this point in the revelation. No one can open. No one can understand. No one can declare. declare, And no one can deliver God's promises into the world. And that's why John's weeping. But then look what it says. It says, the... The king of kings, the lion of Judah, can do it. And so he was really excited. You mean the lion of Judah's here? The lion of Judah can open the scroll and bring God's promises to fruition? So he looked for the lion of Judah, and look what he saw. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. He was looking for a lion, but what did he see? Who wants a lamb to be sitting on the throne? We want a lion. We want someone who looks powerful. And not only was it a lamb sitting at the center of the throne, it was one that looked like it had been slain, like it had lost, like it had been overcome. But then they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You're worthy to do what no one else can do. You're worthy to declare and implement God's promises. You're worthy now to stand on Mount of Olives and to establish God's kingdom. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You know what God declares in that particular passage? The lion is the lamb. And if you miss him as the lamb, you'll never know him as the lion, ever. And that's what happened on the Mount of Olives this day. Here's what was going on. They didn't want him for who he was. They wanted him for what he could do for them. And as I understand the context of this moment in God's unfolding story, I have to ask myself a question. Do I want him for who he is or do I want him for what I want? Let me ask you the question. Do you want him for who he is or do you want him for what you want? I mean, think about how you pray. Are you asking for what you want or are you asking that you can know who he is? Are you asking him to invest himself against your desires or are you giving yourself to invest in his desires. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What do we want from him? And this is important because you do realize, right, that 
If you looked at these people on the Mount of Olives that day, they were celebrating him as the great conqueror. They were celebrating him as the great deliverer. They were celebrating him as the promise of God being unfolded in their life. And they were singing, they were worshiping, and they were honoring, and they were raising their hand. Man, did they look like they loved him. But you know who they really loved? They loved themselves, and he was here to help them. And I find the same thing goes on. We can be gathered in places like this, worshiping and celebrating and lifting our hands and doing all this in the name of Jesus. But we're only celebrating for him because we think he's going to give us what we want instead of celebrating him even when we don't get what we want because of who he is. Where are you at in this process? These people failed. How about us? The Bible records Jesus Weeping twice. I think he wept a lot more than twice. I mean, if he ever saw a Hallmark commercial, he would have had to have wept, right? So he probably wept more. But there were two times that the Bible records him weeping. One time was in front of the tomb of his great friend Lazarus, the brother to Mary and Martha. We've mentioned them in this series. And where the tomb of Lazarus was wasn't far from the Mount of Olives. And standing in front of that tomb, knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he wept. Why would he weep knowing he was going to raise him from the dead? I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one is that death is sorrowful even when we know there's eternity on the other side. I mean, I said goodbye to my dad and I'm going to tell you it was one of the most violent emotional reactions I've ever had in all of my life. And I knew he was walking into Jesus' presence, but he was walking through death and I didn't like it. And I think that's what's going on with Jesus here. I think there might be another thing. I mentioned it in an earlier talk in this series. I think he might have wept because he was asking Lazarus to leave God's presence to come back into this dark world of brokenness. What an awful moment. What an awful thing to do. That's what he was doing. But that's the first time he wept. The second time Jesus wept was when he was approaching Jerusalem offering himself up for inspection for those four days on the Mount of Olives. Look look at Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, accepting me as the lamb, embracing me as the lamb, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The reason he wept here was because they didn't accept him as the savior he was, because he wasn't the savior they wanted. The reason he wept here was because they were looking for peace and joy and all the wrong things. They thought, change their physical circumstances and they would have peace and joy. Get rid of Rome and everything would be okay. But that's a lie from the pit of hell because just because you get a new job doesn't mean you have peace and joy. Just because you get a different relationship doesn't mean you have peace and joy. Just because you experience the change of your circumstances doesn't mean you have peace and joy. And he was weeping because they thought physical deliverance would be more than spiritual deliverance. He wept because they once again missed what they needed most, his love and compassion. They chose temporary hope over eternal hope. And I believe he's still weeping today because as people shout and celebrate his name, most are doing it in the same way they did back then. Most are living for and investing themselves in the wrong day. Today, a day that still is defined by defeat and darkness and evil and the temporary realities of this world. You you know what they're investing themselves in? They're investing themselves in a day in which a bad moon is rising. I finally told you why we did that song just before I did my talk. Some of you have been going, what the heck was that song about? People are living for a bad moon rising day instead of the day when his feet will once again stand on the Mount of Olives, the day of hope. What day are you looking for? Do you know many reject Jesus because he's not the Savior they want, and in so doing, they reject the Savior they need? Many are rejecting Jesus as Lord because he's not the Lord they want, overcoming all the physical realities of their lives but they miss him being the true Lord because they don't accept him the Lord he is. They don't have hope. Which gets me, leads me to the promise that brings this talk into for a landing. His first coming made hope possible. 
without his death and burial and resurrection, without him being the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, there would be no hope. The wage of sin is death, and that's all we would have. His first coming makes hope possible. His second coming is our hope. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Jesus had died and been buried and rose again, and he spent some time with his disciples after his resurrection. And, and then he, it says, after he said this, after he did this teaching, after he spent this time with them, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. I mean, he literally ascended up into the sky, into the heavens. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly... Two men dressed in white. They had to be angels because they'd be the only ones wearing white at this time of the year. And so when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? What a stupid question. <laughs> you know? They said, This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven now get this, this is the hope. We'll come back in the same way you've just seen him go into heaven. Look at this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called what? Oh my gosh. The world was disappointed in him because you see, the Bible foretold that when Messiah put his feet on the Mount of Olives, he would be coming to split that mountain and to conquer the world and set all the injustices right. They rejected him because that's not what happened. But you see, they missed so much of the Bible because the Bible also talked about this Messiah coming and dying, coming as a suffering servant, as someone to die. Isaiah 53 is the perfect example of that. And so Jesus wants to reaffirm the promise of Zechariah is still true. I had to first come as a lamb because without forgiveness, there would be no future for you. But I'm still the lion. And so to show it, he took them back to the Mount of Olives and he stood on the Mount of Olives and he said a couple of things to them. And then he just started floating. Now we do this in the glory of Christmas, all right? But we like have wires and cranes and machines and, you know, we're, we're doing it the way people do it. He floated up into the clouds and went into the heavens. And then the angel said, just as he just did that, He's going to come again and put his feet right here. Why? Because he's the one, when his feet touches the Mount of Olives next time, will establish the kingdom of God forever. He's coming back as a lion. This is an unbelievable deal. He says, I'm still coming. I'm still going to set up the kingdom. But I first had to be a lion, a lamb, before I could be the lion. And here's what I want you to see. Look at John 14, verses 1 through 3. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. What was he doing when he was ascending up into the heavens? He was going to prepare a place for those who embraced him as the lamb. And then he says, and if, I, if I'm going there, I'll come back in the same way you've seen me go. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Is it easier to go up or down? Is it easier to go up or down? It's easier to come down. He went up and he's coming back down. And when he does, not only is he going to establish God's kingdom, but he's coming for those who've embraced him as the lamb. Our hope is secure. The victory's already been won. He's coming to claim his rightful place as king just in the same way he left. And as he promised, it will happen when his feet touch once again on this place, the Mount of Olives. I'm telling you, I'll never read about the Mount of Olives in the same way again. Hopefully you won't. But let me give you an application to take away. I believe you're looking for hope. I believe we all are. I believe the people on the Mount of Olives that day who ultimately rejected Jesus were looking for hope. We all want hope. It's just that we're looking for the wrong kind of hope. We're looking for temporary hope instead of eternal hope. If you're genuinely looking for hope, then you must, you must, you must embrace him as your lamb. You've got to embrace him as your lamb because all have sinned and fallen short and the wages of sin is death. And if we're going to experience forgiveness, if we're going to experience new life and hope, we need to trust in his death, burial, and resurrection in our life. Look at John three eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Before I give you the last point of application and send you on your way, would you just honor this moment for a minute and pray with me? Would you just pray with me? And as we pray, I just really want to encourage you to take a step across the line of faith and trust him as your lamb. Believe in him for your need. In fact, just pray with me. Take my prayer and make it the quiet expression of your heart to God. Just say, God, I need you. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to transform my heart. And I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me and rose again to give me new life. And so I'm trusting you as my lamb. Take away my sins and make me whole. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just before I give you this last point, if you prayed with me, please let us know. I, I'm gonna tell you, we work really, really, really hard to try and share God's truth with you. And it's so exciting to us when we see that God has done a great work in someone's life. And you can just really help us to celebrate by sharing with us what you just did. As well, we've put together a letter that can help you take next steps in your relationship with God. And the only thing you have to do to tell us is take out the program we handed you if you're in one of our live services and, and rip out the connection card, fill it out, check that circle at the bottom says you prayed to receive Jesus with us and then there are boxes at every single exit as you leave our auditorium just throw it in there and we'll send you this letter and we're going to celebrate what you've just done and if you're watching Northridge On Demand just hit the what next button we'll do the same thing for you one last point of application right yes if you're looking for hope you need to embrace him as your lamb but once he's your lamb now get this once he's your lamb he will always be your lion once he's your lamb, he will always be there to deliver you. The Bible says we can be more than conquerors in this world through him who loved us so. He will always be your deliverer once he's your lamb, which means he will always be our hope. We have nothing to fear in this world. No matter how dark this world gets, no matter how dark our lives get, we can always walk in the light of his hope because once he's our lamb, he's always our lion. Here's the question. Do you know him as the lamb? Are you experiencing him as your lion? You see, the Bible, when you understand it, comes to us where we need it most. And we need it to live our lives in fullness. And we need the lamb and the lion to do it. Go away. Worship him. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Yeah.